Welcome to Income for Baby Boomers. If you want to learn about exciting new businesses each week from other boomers who speak your language and have started a unique and profitable business from home, you have come to the right place. For those who would like to try some of these low investment opportunities, stay tuned. We'll help you get started in your own profitable adventure. Now with your host and entrepreneur, Ken Queen. Folks, I'd like to introduce you to Greg Crabtree, consultant, small business expert, author of Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits. Welcome, Greg. How are you doing? Very good, Ken. I appreciate you having me. Oh, super. Um, and I think your background and your age is just perfect for our audience. And uh, the expertise you have, well, numbers is a, is a big problem for most of us. I've, I've owned several companies myself over my lifetime, but numbers has always been a struggle. So <laughs> I'm going to learn a lot today along with all the so listeners. You'll find that you're not alone and some of the best entrepreneurs out there are not great with numbers. And that's why it really kind of struck me as to, to create a, a system that allowed them to know enough about numbers, but then not use so much numbers that stifles their creativity and their ability to be a great entrepreneur. Well, that's great. So, okay, there's a limit to what you should uh, let numbers control you, it sounds like. <laughs> well, you know, you, you almost can take it almost similar to what we see in the golf world now. There's guys, I mean, just take, you know, guys like the Tiger Woods of the world who struggle mm -hmm. at times, and it's many people believe it's because they've gotten too technical, too much into the numbers and the data. And those things can be helpful, but you got to keep it simple. And, you know, I think you'll hear a resounding theme throughout both, most business messaging right now that, as much as we have big data and we have all kinds of technology at our hands, what's simple? And sim simple is pretty powerful when you turn it loose. So it's analysis paralysis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you go too far. Exactly. It, it paralyzes you. You say, well, I can't do that. And I can't do that. And so first thing, you don't do anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're afraid. Well, and, and, I, and I think the other thing about it, too, is the fact that you've got to look at who's selling you something. You know, in in the sense that you know the people who push big data techniques and those kind of things, what are they selling you? I mean, obviously, the more analysis provides them more profit, and I get it. But there's a point that you can take anything to the illogical extreme. And I I was speaking with an entrepreneur group in South Florida yesterday, and I was telling them, I said, you know, the dirty little secret of my accounting profession is that we you know, we celebrate uh, in most of those businesses back at the office when we've been able to bill you a really big amount for a lot of billable hours, and rarely has that accountant stopped and thought about, but did I do something useful for you? Did I do something, you know, that audit that I just handed you that I charged twenty five to $40,000 for, did you just stick it in the drawer and then tell the accountant to send a copy to the bank and you never even opened it to consider how you should run your business differently from it? And that's the way most of those financial statement deliveries happen. So it's a different so it way of what? thinking. Money flushed down the toilet when you do that. That's right. Exactly. It's, it's gone. Just to go off subject a little bit, Greg, but I'm just trying to get your entrepreneurial roots just to give an idea of where you're from and how long, you know, yeah. uh, when did you first uh, start thinking about being an entrepreneur. You own the company here. Yeah, right? so. I, I do. Well, it, it was kind of one of those things that to some degree, I was kind of an accidental entrepreneur. Started with okay. a, with an accounting firm that I learned the trade, got hired by a banking client of ours and spent three years as their controller and ended up controller and VP of operations. I found that that accounting gig wasn't really that good, wouldn't really take up all my time. After I'd worked for them about 30 days, I realized I had a two-day-a-month job. 
and I was not bright enough to figure out how to fake it for the other 28 days. So I figured out I got involved in other things like managing the bond portfolio and did well with that and still had time to spare. And so I ended up being VP of operations in my spare time. And and it's really it's interesting. I mean, working for the bank is really where I got a lot of my ideas about how businesses should be managed and run. And then when I left the bank and started my practice, I, I really spent, you know, the next 10, 15 years studying entrepreneurs. And it's like, well, I could give them some information, but really what I was more curious about is how did they see the data and what were they using? And some of them had some really gosh awful things that they created that they used to manage their business. But I started to talk to them more and think about, well, what are you seeing here? What What is it that I'm not seeing, you know, as a as a trained accountant? And and I started to find that there's there's segments of data that are golden to the natural instinct of an entrepreneur. And then the thing that really got me into thinking like an entrepreneur was I joined the Entrepreneurs Organization in 2001. Yeah. And that that was a game changer because in in EO as we refer to it, it it's you know you you spend um, I, I joined the Atlanta chapter, which is, which is actually four hours away from where I live. Mm-hmm. And so I spent four hours a month driving to Atlanta, four hours in the forum meeting with nine other people who weren't accountants. Uh, and I was by forum rules prohibited from doing business with them. And then I spent a four-hour drive home. Now, that's the reason why most accountants aren't in EO, because they look at that as 12 potential billable hours. That I mean, mm-hmm. that nothing can be that good. Well, I'm telling you it was because I had nine other entrepreneurs that I'd love to have as a client that I couldn't have as a client that became my focus group of what's wrong with the accounting profession. And they told me that basically one is uh, nobody likes the April 15th surprise, which I agreed with them, and I had an idea of how to fix that. But secondly, they don't like being billed by the hour. And the guy who got me into EO was a client of mine that that had already challenged me that says, hey, you know, there is a standard pricing structure, so why don't you learn to bill on a fixed price basis? So today about 75, 80% of what we do is on a fixed price basis, not not on a uh, uh, hour. hourly billing. Yeah, because right. a billable hour technique, I mean, I, I, I'll tell everybody on that listens to this, I mean, billing by the hour is charging for your ignorance and giving away your expertise. And so it's it's not exactly it, – it's it's the lazy man's approach to what they think is value. But I'm telling you, as someone who used to bill by the hour, I, not every hour is the same. An hour is not a common unit of value. It is a common unit of cost, but it's not a common unit of value. But the third piece was the damning indictment of the accounting profession because – he said, oh, by the way, you see hundreds of businesses' intimate details, more so than any other advisor. You ought to have some idea of what works and what doesn't. And at that point, I knew they were dead right because here we had been processing tax returns and financial statements and doing bookkeeping, not realizing that incredibly valuable business intelligence was right in front of our eyes, that the Federal Reserve um, economic analysts would kill if they would a- were able to see that. And here it is right in front of me for free. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't involve a billable hour because nobody's going to pay me to do research on it. But I chose to do research on it and develop my philosophies around the simple numbers concept because I took 33 of our best clients – 
in the initial research project, mm-hmm. and I said, how do I compare these businesses even though they're not the same industry? And and it's really where we developed our philosophy that said, first, you got to remove distortions. And so we had to create a common language of business for the entrepreneur, which typically meant a singular P&L structure that we use for every business regardless of industry. Because anybody who listens to this podcast, if they – if they pull out their P&L and everybody else pulls out their P&L, I can guarantee you that unless they're one of our clients, their P&L will look different than everybody else's. So what we've done is we've created the Tower of Babel for financial learning and that <laughs> nobody speaks the same language. And, and Yeah, and so we had to create a singular approach, but there's power in that approach that you know, we had to remove the distortions of the owner-pay concept that you know, we'll talk about. And then we had to then figure out what part of the business model is really bait that's a pass-through to get somebody to do business with you, and where does the economic value chain really start? And so we developed this concept of what we consider to be true cost of goods sold to get to what we believe is gross margin, which is the top economic number of the P&L. And so when you take revenue minus the pass-through cost, if you're a construction contractor, it's materials and subcontractors. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you're a, if, you, if you're a retailer, it's the cost of the things you sell. I mean, that you didn't make them. You're just there. You're using all those goods and what you paid for them to get somebody to do commerce with you. And so, so once you get to gross margin, then gross margin minus direct labor is the true powerful element of the business engine. And the relationship of producing gross margin for every dollar of labor that's there is the real essence of the heart of, of the engine of the thing that you make money with. So you're not just teaching how to balance the books. You're saying to the entrepreneur – here are the customers that are making you money, or here are right. the ones that aren't, and exactly. you're getting right into the value of each customer. Exactly. Amazing. Well, and think of it like this, Ken. I mean, because, you know, if if you're taught how to lay bricks, all you ever think you are is a bricklayer mm-hmm. versus, hey, you see that cathedral over there? We're going to build one of those. Mm-hmm. And And you – I think it's taught wrong. It, you've got to start with the end in mind of what is this thing, what does done look like? You know, and what what is the the structure of that business engine? And I, and I think we, we've not spent any time teaching the up and coming accountants or even or anybody in, in business that needs to know the function of accounting to understand. Here's what done looks like. Now let's figure out how to, how how the pieces fit together so that you can get there. Because it, it's, there's just no picture in the framework. And so we've had tremendous success of getting entrepreneurs who would self-proclaim non-numbers people to get it, oh, oh, that's all I got to do. Okay, I can go do that. And, and it's just getting it down to seven or eight simple lines of data that are rolled up into the, the most important things. And then, you know, then as you refine the business and, and try to squeeze out inefficiencies here or there, yeah, you're going to drill down a little bit, but you're going to find there's, there's, far less, <laughs> there's far less oil when you drill down than oil of what knowing and value is there once you look at it from the big picture level. But as you said, see, what, you, what we've done is created this construct that says the the big part of your engine is revenue minus direct cost minus direct labor, which is what we then call contribution margin. We want you to be able to see that for the business in total. We want you to see it by customer, by location, by line of business, 
and potentially even by employee or work group, uh, depending on how, le- how how much you can account for things down to that level. In my industry, I can account for revenue by person. So I, I know my labor efficiency for every person as well as every customer, as well as the four lines of business that we have of consulting, tax, uh, accounting, and uh, outsourcing. And, and so we know which one actually is the most profitable and, and which one that you've got to do on a bigger scale to then make the output worthwhile. And, and every business has that capacity. So what we have without that knowledge is someone hanging on to, let's say, a really big customer that's actually mm-hmm. costing them money. Yeah, really. And stepping over all the other customers who are making the money, focusing their time on the wrong the wrong client. Absolutely. You know, revenue is, is vanity. Uh, profit is sanity and cash is king. You know, and, and so you've got to, you got to really understand that profitability matrix. And, and so, and part of it goes to the heart of what I believe when you start to do segment accounting, you don't try to do segment accounting to where you're doing a bunch of allocations of stuff. It, it, you know, your, your big warning sign should be if I have to allocate a cost, I should probably ignore it for this analysis. Cause, and I learned this back at the bank. I mean, I created one of the first branch profitability statements that that was ever done for the bank. And I did it the traditional accounting way the first time. And I took everything, every cost, because in my in my structured thinking, I thought every cost had to be spread across all activities until I realized that the branches had the right idea. They said, I don't control what the home office cost is. Well, mm-hmm. why, why am I held? Yeah, yeah, that doesn't matter. And they're exactly right. And and so ultimately, at the end of the day, all I had to do was for my branches that were deposit generators, I had to give them an appropriate credit rate for the deposits they generated that the home office could loan. And then the home the home office that did the loans, they had to pay the branches for being deposit generators. And, and you know, and it created a construct that actually made sense. And everybody goes, oh, so we actually all both need each other. Really? Of course. Yeah, because one location was doing something that it couldn't do without the benefit of the others and vice versa. And that one model of that one location, everyone else could copy and get it right. That's right, yeah, because when we did the original book, uh, one thing that I did was not able to put in the book that we were working on at the time was the more ex- expanded version of direct labor efficiency and management labor efficiency. So we were able to actually take... The, the, in the in the book, I talk about just an overall labor efficiency of, of gross margin per labor dollar, but as and I didn't have enough data at the time that I was doing it to feel comfortable putting in the book. But I've since written about it, and if your listeners want to to pick this book up uh, by Vern Harnish, a book called Scaling Up, and and I was able to write a chapter for Vern's book, which is a wonderful book that every business owner ought to have on their shelf. Is I was able to put our current thinking in a chapter there that gives them both the direct labor efficiency and the management labor efficiency concept. And where we developed that idea was a, a, a landscaping business in Omaha, Nebraska. And, and we were able to look at their four divisions. So they had an irrigation division, a landscaping division, a snow removal division, and a mowing division. And we were able to look at their data and, and essentially you know, their revenue minus those direct costs of, for irrigation or landscape, you know, you pass those out. So you had your margin. So gross margin per, per direct labor dollar of those work teams, they were doing a four 
multiple in both uh, landscape irrigation and snow, but they were only doing a 2.5 in uh, in uh, the the uh, mowing division, and and they shared the data with a ten dollar ten dollar an hour mowing guy, and he's and this is where from the mouth of babes comes great wisdom. He said, "Well, looks like to me we shouldn't be in the mowing business." I was just going to say that. <laughs> Get rid of that division and, right now. <laughs> right, and, and that's the power. When you're looking at, I mean, you have this sense. I mean, you see a lot of data, but you got to boil it down to something simple that just screams at you. So they looked at it, scratched their heads, and said, you know what? You're right if it continues to be that, but let's see if we can change it. And so what they did is they got rid of all their price-conscious mowing-only customers and kept the, the the customers who did mowing along with the other projects. And they were able to keep the same LER from the other divisions, but they were able to raise mowing labor efficiency to about a 3.7 now. And, and so that made it far more acceptable and and profitable to say, okay, well, this is worth doing then. And and so that's a, that's a perfect situation of – you know, we want to make it hard as a business owner. We keep thinking there's some magic, difficult thing that I will become aware of, you know, and and all of a sudden, you know, I've got the secret, you know. But at the end of the day, you know, you look at it, and go, oh, it's really just that simple, isn't it? And and but there's still there there, uh, there is a secret there revealed. There right. is, I mean, obvious things sometimes are not seen. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's really where. You know, as they look at it now, what it does is it also sometimes exposes that thing that you really don't want to address. So the one that is is more common that you don't want to address is this idea that is what we call management labor efficiency. And so, you know, the, the, the dirty little joke about management labor is that everybody will probably say, oh, well, I want to be a manager someday. And the reason why they say that is because they have in this perception in their mind that a manager is someone who just looks over things and don't really do anything, and they make a bigger salary. And, you know, we call it a cousin Eddie job. So we we refer to it as the character out of National Lampoon's Vacation movie, you know, that Randy Quaid played. You mm-hmm. know, and, and Clark was asking him one day, he says, hey, hey, Eddie, how come you don't have a job? And he says, well, Clark, I'm holding out for a management position. <laughs> and, and, and I remember that, that that's, dinner table or something. Oh yeah, and that's really you know why you know everybody thinks that. And so we had we felt like we had to come up with this measurement that holds management accountable to productivity. And and so yeah, you might be overseeing something, but you better be actionable in that overseeing. Mm-hmm. And so you're producing some results. Yeah. So we believe that in our philosophy that every dollar of labor should be held accountable to something. So direct labor is pretty simple. They're held accountable to gross margin, not revenue, gross margin. It, and it's, it's, a, it's after the cost of goods sold is what the direct labor then has to, to work with. From a management labor standpoint, they're held accountable to contribution margin, which is the gross margin minus direct labor. So that's that output of the business engine. And it's a clean output. We don't want any loading of payroll taxes or benefits or, you know, or overhead expenses or anything like that. No, no, no. Keep it clean. Keep it simple. And, and that output after the, the expenditure of, of, of direct labor wages, that, that contribution margin is what every management dollar is responsible for. 
Now, we see a huge range of multiples of direct labor efficiency to where, you know, the landscaping company, their industry is about a four, you know, that we see. We can actually say, boy, that's a really good market. Yeah, yeah. But there's a reason for that. What we found in terms of just a learning of the general concept of labor efficiency is mm-hmm. is the the lower the wage rate. So the closer that you're in uh, to minimum wage, minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, probably those people you're looking at a situation where it's typically about a three to four multiple that you got to get for that kind of labor. And then as the wage rate goes up, you're getting less and less of a multiple. Now certain industries. Uh, um, like a staffing business, they're they're below a two. They're they're actually a staffing industry can be anywhere from a dollar and a quarter to a buck fifty. But think about why that is, because in the staffing industry, you're just being paid to recruit and write a paycheck. You're you're not managing that person, mm-hmm. and so so therefore that's why the margin is such that yeah you're going to have a big top line revenue number. But if you measure your success as a business across that top line, you're not going to look anything like, you know, a software development business that, that has, you know, software as a service revenue or something like that, or a service business, you know, like in the professional services realm. You know, so, so every business model has it, its indicator, but the way we teach it is that it's not so much – what the other guy is doing, what matters is, is you pattern out the way you know it needs to be done that allows you to make a profit, serves the customer, and then you monitor those trends to make sure that labor is continuing to be consistently productive. Because I believe that, you know, we probably produce 15 to 20 percent lower GDP in the U.S. just because of inefficiencies. Not not inefficiencies. Well, for sure in our government. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Don't even get me started on that. But but in the even in the private sector, you could do easily fifteen to twenty percent more productivity if people could stay consistently productive. And as I've watched this across business after business after business, you can see people get emotionally up, and they'll do it for a while, but they can't sustain it. You know, and you and you've seen this in. There's plenty of. In sales, you see it. Yeah, you see it. Yeah, yeah. you know, if you you know, you give your salespeople a monthly quota hit. Do they sell more in the last week of the month or the first week of the month? I mean, you know. But see, yeah. that's the thing. It's everyone's scrambling at the end. Yeah, we've given people the wrong structure to be. Yeah. And, and and a lot of it is motivation. I mean, my big thing on motivation, too, is that I put in the first book that uh, the, this idea about um, most entrepreneurs want to create a variable pay structure for their employees because they want to, to one, push off the, the, the business variation risk onto the employee. But, two, they believe they're under this false assumption that if they just give somebody the opportunity to make the right amount of money, that they'll they'll do it without leadership and management. And I got news for you. You can never abdicate leadership and management. So therefore, why are you giving somebody a variable pay structure? Because they're not going to produce more just because you stuck something out there in front of them in 95 plus percent of the the times. I mean, it's been proven over and over and over again. You know, money, it sounds great. Everybody will shake their head and say yes. But when you measure it and, and look at the output, it does not change their behavior. 
and and there's just tons of studies that continue to drive that point home, and yet we keep even with even with sales, even with sales, yeah. even with sales. I mean, and I'll tell you, the, the salesperson that's driven by money, you probably don't want to invite them to dinner. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, from a cultural standpoint, you probably wouldn't even want them in your business, you know, from that standpoint. You don't want to invite killer home. No, that's right. <laughs> you know, and and so. So from from that standpoint, there has to be a different way. I mean, I love. I mean, Dan Pink is another one of my favorite authors, and Dan has written some incredible research on motivation around sales thinking. He did a great article in uh, Harvard Business Review on why salespeople should be paid a salary, and um, and and I think to to a large degree, the way I've tried to dis, to, uh, to talk about it is that I don't think the incentive. And it drives the behavior. The behavior should actually produce a recognition of compensation, not a that 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 extra compensation is you rewarding that person for them choosing to do something different, not thinking that that reward is what actually made them do it differently. And to get them to do it differently takes leadership and management. They've got to have a structure. They've got to have a purpose. They've got to have a focus. And and really, you know, I mean, it's the egg or the chicken. What was first? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And when we've got it wrong and that we think that that incentive was what caused that person to produce. And I, I just and I think I think a lot of those high flying salespeople that people think are motivated by money, you know, they're just that they're just wired that way. You know, they will. How many of them truly would produce less? If they didn't have a an incentive structure, they're just that's true. They're they're uh, a personality. That's right. They're driven. You know, so so from that standpoint, you know, you just got to look at it. And and as much as I kind of warn my entrepreneurial clients about incentive pay structures, we have come up with a way that we kind of adapted a concept that I was taught by uh, Springfield Remanufacturing, Jack Stack's company that he developed, uh, you know, really made popular a concept called the great game of business. So where they're basically using, you know, business as kind of a game. And so it creates goals and incentives and you are paid um, kind of a reward of that. But I think they would even argue that you know, it, it's a, you know, from what uh, Jack tells us, you know, he says, you know, the rank and file employees get about 13% of their base pay uh, as a as a recognition and management gets about 18% of their base pay. You know, I mean, it, it's not an it, it's not an insignificant amount, but it's not an amount that is going to change how you live your life on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so we've adapted that structure in a way that we believe the key number, key metric that we're gen- Generally tying that performance to for them to hit, uh, whether it's an executive or rank and file. But we we tend to encourage more executive focus than um, it, it it gets. Very few companies have the discipline and the acumen to explain it to the rank and file like Jack Stack's company. They they made a wholesale commitment to really invest in education of their team about business. Mm-hmm. You know, but but the average employee, hey, I'm I'm happy if I can just get their management team first of all to to understand it, and and so we structure it to where you you're really trying to focus on producing contribution margin. We we actually don't want them to focus on net income in the smaller businesses because. There's too much variation in terms of people wanting to argue about the 
property, what the owner makes or the perks that the owner has. And it's a lot simpler to just focus on contribution margin because I will tell you that once you follow our structure of taking a market-based wage as an owner out of the business and you quit playing all the games and stuff that people do, the, the operating expense section of the P&L becomes very, very stable, and it's not a mystery. And so you know that if you hit X dollars of contribution margin, you're going to be profitable. I mean, there's no mystery to it. And, and that's, that's a simpler way because you get people's eyes up higher in the P&L. I don't want them focused on revenue because that's a slippery number that isn't all equal. But contribution margin dollars are equal. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that someone must have been re reading your book because they got rid of all middle management. <laughs> well, to a certain degree. I mean, I think there is an argument that – so <laughs> what you do see, I think what the new middle management is, is actually – so we have situations where you know, you've got a work team and there's obviously a leader of that team. We consider mm -hmm. all of those people direct labor. I mean, so even though that, you know, so, you know, like in our office, uh, we have pod, we call them pods. And so that work team uh, has a as a pod leader, and that person has some management responsibility. And I know that their productivity is going to be a little bit diminished because they're not fully billable because they have some management duties. But I can factor that into what I recognize as their performance target. And so, hey, just hit your target. And we're able in our business and in many uh, labor uh, service delivery businesses, we can build a plan that says, hey, if everybody does their plan, we know we're going to be profitable. There's just zero mm -hmm. mystery to it. And, and that becomes the easiest thing to build a plan. Then it comes down to execution. Now, here's a nugget that I'll tell you. This has excited me. Uh, this is the biggest idea that we've come across, and we stole it from the programming industry in that we've had the best first two months of our, this year ever in our business, largely because we've adopted this concept of agile uh, management that the, the programmers use and using a sprint philosophy. And so agile is just a programming methodology where you take the task, break it into pieces. They call them stories. You assign values to those stories as to how much effort it'll take to get them done. And then you order the, the sequence in which they, they get done and you focus on them over what's called a two-week sprint. And so you start the two weeks with, okay, here's what here's the elements of that story I'm going to work on. And then when you end the sprint, you look back and say, here's what I said I was going to do. Here's what, what I actually did. What did I learn? Now, what's the next two-week sprint? And, and so we've adapted that to our work environment. And, I mean, it, it's just been marvelous to see you know, good people that had always struggled to just, they would get close. Everybody, everybody, oh, you know, they're good folks. They, they tried hard, they worked hard, but they, they just didn't quite get to the finish line. And that's where I say that that's really where, you know, in the U.S., I believe we got 15 to 20% under, under productive people because we don't give them processes and structures to really achieve their best. Because here's the thing, even though we produce more in those, those first two months of the year, everybody is energized. And they're energized because they realize their own potential. How do you stop people from sacrificing long-term to look good for this quarter? Type of thing. Well, uh, so we do that by – so we put fences around their productivity. So in our structure, we actually pay our staff hourly. So we pay them time and a half for overtime. But we give them a 
200 hour they are they're only allowed to work 200 hours of overtime in a in the in the calendar year and so we monitor their budgets to make sure that they're not just spending more time and because i have a fundamental belief I, I i think a lot of people have said they've improved productivity when all they did was pay people a salary and made them work longer that's not improving productivity mm-hmm. I, that's cheating and and I, I you know you've got to get a person productive in the physical time that they're present and and that takes a coordination it takes it it also takes eliminating the bad producers i'm telling you we we did we had a situation in our own office in the early 2013 where we got off to a slow start and we were changing our data system so i was middle of february before i saw my my labor efficiency numbers and we were just so horribly off labor efficiency you wouldn't believe it so i immediately terminated the two people that i'd heard the grumblings of that were causing the problems with the team and the next two week cycle we produced fifty thousand dollars more with two less people now <laughs> and, and and here efficiency is important oh it, I, I, you cannot, you know, when people say that you you do not understand the cost of an unproductive person, I'm telling you, we measured it because I'm telling you, it was twenty five thousand dollars a week that these two people were costing us. Because when one per- yeah, when one person is unproductive, guess what? They're not only making themselves unproductive; they're making one or more other people unproductive, and they're sucking the energy and the life out of the business. And and it it was just such an eye opening thing, you know, to to do that. And and so I so I believe that you know a friend of mine uh, Steve Satterwhite he wrote a book um, you know that that talked about his experiences um, I think it's called Above the Line and and Steve he Steve makes a great statement he says everybody's an A player somewhere it may not be in your business <laughs> and so. So just keep in mind if you're if you got people on your team that's not an A player, you are holding them back as well as they're holding you back. And uh good point. Yeah, and it's huge. So once you get those people going and you get them in that mode, the and I believe you got you can't let people just work more hours for the same pay and call that increased productivity. That 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 doesn't fly. Mhm. I was thinking about scale. If you don't know what's working, how can you scale? Mm-hmm. So you really you need to know all the parts to this so that, okay, now I'm going to open another branch. I know exactly mm-hmm. what works and why it works, and that's what you get into where mm-hmm. a lot of times it's more accidental it's, or they, they don't know what, what caused their success. Well, you have to be careful, too, in the fact that the fallacy is you're thinking that uh, I'm not profitable today because I just need more volume. Well, you know, um, no, that doesn't work. You know, you, you may be the the. There was a great skit at Saturday Night Live did years ago called the First National Change Bank. You know, and it says, "What do you? You know, they make change for people." It says, "Well, you know, four quarters for a dollar." It says, "Well, how do you make profit? Volume." And I'm, going, I'm sorry, that doesn't work. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and but see here now here's the thing about scale though because what you will see as you dominate a market segment is you will see pricing pressure and you will see labor efficiency likely decline to a point but but that's really where see in my business model I have two fluctuating dynamics I've got the rate of direct labor efficiency and I got 
the rate of management labor efficiency. So typically, what when you go to what everybody calls scaling a business, what you're going to find is is you've got to get more skinny with your your margin with your direct labor as you get deeper into the market. So your direct labor efficiency might drop from 2.5 to 2.3, but you make it up by making management labor more efficient. So that management team is managing more contribution margin uh, th- that makes up the difference so that it does come out to be a win. Because I will tell you this, the secret to profitability is making your management labor productive, not necessarily making your direct labor productive. Hmm. I- I'm thinking of something you said earlier too, which is interesting. The The businesses that employ a lot more people on that bottom end, 10 to $15 an hour. Yeah. The profit level is four times, and as you go up the scale and you're paying someone $100 an hour, mm-hmm. like an attorney or something right. that you've hired, you're making maybe mm-hmm. two times, right. not four times. Exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, a, t- a good number, so we, we have a lot of clients that are in government contracting. So this, this labor effic- direct labor efficiency ratio is a close cousin to what in, in the government contract space is called a wrap rate. And, and a government contractor wants to know, for every direct labor dollar or a charge, what should I bill the customer that allows me to cover my overhead and make a profit? And that's really kind of the idea behind it. And mm-hmm. ours is just a slight modification of that, but it, it answers the same question. And and so what you find is is most of those engineering contracts that we have with our clients, you know, they're around a two LER. You know, and that's a person that probably entry level is about fifty thousand, and probably top level worker billable resources probably going to be one twenty five to one fifty. You know, and and that that number is where they they make it work. And then um, and, and if they're a specialist uh, type, they got special unique knowledge or something. You know, they're probably looking at more in the neighborhood of you know they might make a two point two or two point three. Uh, and then if they're what we call a body shop contract. So they're providing labor to the government, but they're not really doing much in the way of managing them. Maybe the customer is managing them. You know, those mm-hmm. those people are down into like the one point seven range that, that they can uh uh, they, they can actually be successful with. And so that's kind of the dynamic, though, the, but you start to understand your business in a lightning-fast way because I'm only dealing with like four or five numbers in my head of understanding what it needs to be to, be, to make it profitable. Excellent. Yeah, it's the simplification is, is where the power is. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of, I think you mentioned somewhere here that a lot of data that owners are gathering is worthless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's 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 really kind of cool, you know that that uh, you know when they can look at it like that, you know it's it just allows people to not only analyze what has gone on, but it we it, it allows them in in our models that we do for our clients, it allows us to create a lightning quick way of doing forecasting. Hmm. Um, let me ask you this, Greg. Let's go into uh, a little different application of what you do mm-hmm. um, for someone to try to start something up they're an accountant mm-hmm. okay I've got listeners there they've been an accountant all their life yep. all right they've retired and now they want to figure out how they can uh, you know make a go of it online or uh, somehow uh, start something on the side what would you recommend for them to, what would you recommend they do 
Well, I mean, I think if you're, you know, if you've kind of gone the original route, part of it is, is you kind of have to, you have to think differently in terms of turning yourself into a consultant. And, and what I would do is I would, I would stop hanging out with accountants and I'd start hanging out with entrepreneurs. Okay. Entrepreneurs. Yeah. Okay. That's, 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 I mean, that's, that's how I kind of turned my thinking around is I, I, I don't go to any state association meetings. Uh, one of the partners of the firm I started working for years ago, he said, why do I want to hang out with them? I mean, they're, they're not my customer. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it does, yeah, it does right. tell you a lot. But the other thing that I would do is I would start reading. And so I, I would tell you, um, the guy that really got me to write my first book that did the forward for me, Vern Harnish, uh, and then he uh, invited me to, to add a chapter to his recent book, Scaling Up. I think Vern would be the first place that I would start because he's a great aggregator of good business thinking. And, um, you know, and so I, I think uh, he, he, he writes probably one of the few uh, blog posts that I really pay attention to, you know, every couple of weeks when it comes out, because he's always pulling from the the real forward thinking guys, and then he holds a summit twice a year, um, one in Orlando and one in Arizona that uh, that really is is a good accumulation of the the freshest business thinking, you know, out there in the marketplace. Um, so probably his blog would be a real good place, or if he has one, right. Exactly, yeah, it does, yeah. And, and like I said, just go uh, gazelles. dot com is his uh, website. Uh, so, so I think Vern is kind of a great place to start because he's very gracious to connect people with other thinkers in various areas, and you'll start to connect with, you know, if you if you really want to think about where the world is going in terms of a futurist thinking, you know, Peter Peter Diamandis uh, with Abundance three hundred and sixty is probably the next guy that you think of in terms of, you know, kind of being aware of where things are going because, you know, accountants. Have a, ter- a natural tendency to just think about being historical reporters of the past, and I, I got enamored early on in my career of learning how to create forecast models and predicting where we are going. And I think the entrepreneur out there is really hungry for someone who can create an actionable forecast that causes you to change what you do today because of where you want to get to. And the the cleaner that you can create a model that helps people. And and like I said, that's why we, we structured our data the way it is, because I'm not trying to do a forecast down to the account level. I, I've grouped things in a logical way that, that allows them to move in a natural fashion based on other numbers inside the model. So it's a totally self-contained deal that if, if you just tell me how much activity you're going to do, you know, it'll give you the targets for labor. It'll give you the targets for how much you can add for management labor, for payroll taxes and, and facilities and so forth. And, and so you're trying to, to get it to where you're not making it so overburdensome. Because where I saw this in action, and, and we just we just created our own concept to do it, was it, I did the two days uh, tour at Springfield Remanufacturing at Jack Stack's business, and, and they still hold that tour today. And you can see machine workers in their engine plant that can explain a balance sheet, P&L, and cash flow statement better than any accountant I've ever met. <laughs> and, and these guys, they, they forecast weekly. They reforecast the future weekly. They produce a combined consolidated financial statement for, gosh, uh, it's, it's pro- I think they're up to like 100 companies in their group now. You know, and, and they bring, bring financials together every Wednesday and create a consolidated financial picture of not only what did they do in the last week, but what are they going to do in the next five to six weeks and then – 
for the rest of the year. That takes a tremendous discipline and foresight, you know, to create a structure like that. But they, it's, it's allowed them to be an incredibly stable business. Um, SRC Holdings is the overall business, you know, but they, they've just done a phenomenal job, uh, you know, in their industry. And they're, and they're in a nuts and bolts. I mean, they, they do engine remanufacturing. I mean, you know, it's not exactly, you know, uh, building a website kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, what else? I was thinking of going in another direction there, yeah. too. Okay, so this accountant says, okay, uh, I'll start joining some of those groups. The, the 25 or 30 years of accounting that he's done, there's a value there, even though it might not be up to the level you're talking about, but there's always a value from those 30 years of experience, you would say? I mean, there's really something there. Well, I, I think it depends on how you look at that experience. So, you know, you may have been like I was at one point where, you know, I was processing a financial statement and a tax return, and uh, but I was really trying to get the job done to get it billed to get to the next project, and I didn't stop to really ponder what the data meant. And so if you've had that 25, 30 years of experience, I would start reliving some of those experiences and start thinking differently about some of those clients that you worked on and businesses and said, hmm, you know, if I looked at that business in a different light, how, what would, because, because I think differently about my, the clients that I had worked on before, you know, I kind of came to these conclusions about what we found from our most, more recent research. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, I wish I'd, wish I knew that back then. I could have helped them better. So you can actually reinvest mm-hmm. in your past. That's a great concept. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. You can go back and reflect and say, okay, here's what I should have done. Yeah. I should have tried this, this, and this. Yeah. So you can um, apply it to the clients you're going to get today. And, and, and I really think the idea is, is built around, I would encourage them to look at our modeling concept you know, that we write about because I believe this is the way to look at a P&L. And everybody will lobby for their little tweak or their little that. And I can, well, you can lobby all you want, but I'm telling you, that I use this for every client. And it works because it's created this singular language because – you know, from you know, my passion was. I mean, I, I don't want to be just a singular consultant. I wanted to build a consulting business, and so I had to prove that I could go train and uh, hire and train another consultant to do what I do because I'm not teaching them what is taught in business school. I'm teaching them unique ideas and concepts. Mm-hmm. And so once once Brandon Gray got hired and developed, then I had uh, the next one came along is Patrick Myers, and after Patrick was ready, then we hired Mike Boggs, and and now uh, we're probably ready to bring the next one on. And so I've got other people that are having this very same discussion with a client or somebody else. And, and I, I, I hear them as they're doing their calls and they're saying it in a very consistent way in our philosophy of how we believe things, because it is a belief. It's not regurgitating rules. And, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, and once you get your your knowledge and understanding to that level, you're you're in a different plane than somebody that's just saying, "Well, debits on the left and credits on the right." <laughs> well, I I I worked with attorneys and did something similar there that they gave me two or three books and said, "Here's how we do uh, mm-hmm. the attorney business." A, a friend of mine wanted me to help him start a, an office, and I tried their methods for the first couple of months, <laughs> but I said, "This is going to take ten or twenty years." Yeah. 
and I don't have that much time. Yeah. So <laughs> I figured I'm going to do it my yeah. way now. And then over the next two months, we went from zero to yeah. 65000 a month in billing. But I didn't use orthodox yeah. right. <laughs> methods. I figured, okay, we're going to try anything. we got to make this work. Especially in this case, I'd, mm -hmm. I'd uh, had a over 50,000 cash and they're helping him. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was really more you, you, you sure. We... Uh, it's like they say, you know, the difference between a chicken and, and a pig and a bacon and egg breakfast, you know, the chicken is an interested party. The pig's committed, you know, so, uh, <laughs> so yeah. Yes, I was committed. Were committed. So we're, well, I mean, we're going to make this work. And interesting, yeah. I mean, talking about attorneys, I mean, we found this interesting niche that we have several uh, personal injury attorneys as clients because we, we've, I mean, we use this same model for an attorney. I mean, believe it or not, I mean, it, most people would think, oh, you got to look at them differently. No, you don't. No, they, they have a business model just like everybody else. And a lot of them is, is like you said, getting them off of their traditional mindset mm -hmm. of what we call the leftover mindset. You know, profession, professions, oh, it, I, I, that's all these the profession businesses want to do is they want to eat leftovers in, in that. You know, so it's like here. Here's what we take in, and here's what we spend on expenses, and everything's left over is mine. And it's like well, that's not the right way to think because you have a business and you have a job, and you have to separate yourself from the job that you have and the business that you own. And that business that you own is responsible to produce a profit, but you, as a worker in the business, are responsible to do a job for a fair price. You know, for your compensation. And once you can segregate those two concepts, you will have clarity now in your data so that you actually know what is the business producing uh, and, and what is it, what of that came from your effort for the what you got paid for the job that you did and what part of that came from the business being a business that if you ever wanted to extract yourself and replace yourself with somebody better, that that business should st still produce that amount of profit or more. But I get what you're saying. If you're so focused on the billable hour, then you can't see the forest well, for the trees. Or well, here, here's the best example. So we had, we had these two dentists as a client that own a three-location dental practice. And we said, you know, the, one of them, you know, was was not making as much as his partner. And he said, well, it's because I'm, you know, I, I'm spending all my time managing the business. And I go, well, you're right. We need to fix that. So we need to pay you at a rate that what we would pay a practice manager for every hour that you spend managing the business. And mm -hmm. and so you keep up with those hours, and, and, and we'll pay you at a rate of $75,000 a year because that's what we knew that we could get a practice manager for a three-location dental practice. Mm -hmm. and, and we proved it because we actually hired the guy for them and um, and did a great job. And And so – you know, as it turned out, you know, he, he ended up improving his pay because he was now focused on being a dentist. Because what I told him after, you know, we, we offered what the idea was, I said, now, you know, you can spend all your time working at that rate of pay. Because as the owner of the business, you get to pick any job you want to have. The problem, $10 an hour jobs or that's right. $500 an hour jobs? <laughs> that's right. Because you can pick any job you want, but the market picks your pay. You can you can pay yourself 300000 a year for for $10 an hour job, but all you did was steal it from the bottom line because the mm -hmm. market does not respect that value. And and so those, so they got it. And and that is a common theme throughout. And and the other thing that, you know, I, I keep bringing up in my talks, uh, you know, when I travel is that, you know, this thing of if you've got a multi-owner business, 
you know, when you got two owners, if they're both making, if you think you should make the same thing because you're an owner, somebody's getting the short end of the stick. But I, I've never seen two people like, never equal. Never equal. Now your ownership can be equal. That just means you should get equal profit allocations and distributions. But the compensation that you get for the job that you do should be mm-hmm. based on the value you bring to the table, and how well did you do it? You know, and did you actually execute on that value? You know, for what you got paid for. And uh, and we've got a technique that we actually will go through an analysis with a multi-owner business, and everybody says, you know, percentage of time they spend in all the various functions, and then we go out and pull market-based wage surveys, and we help them set that compensation level. So we're kind of the arbiter, you know, in that process. It helps the process. But, hey, you know, I put it in the book. i got to live with it, you know. So that's one thing about writing a book. You know, you put it in there, and unless you retract it, I mean, you got to live with it. Well, I mean, sometimes if we have to, we retract. That's right. So far, you know, but the you know, and I was worried about that when I wrote the book originally. But uh, so far, I hadn't had to retract anything I've said. Yeah, exactly. so. yeah. Now, just to go back to uh, my my uh, listeners, some of their situations. So, okay, so they go out and they 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 start to figure out. They join local groups or whatever, and they start to see. Uh, how they should have done accounting right. before because they started to analyze it. How would they promote themselves? Uh, what would you recommend they do? Well, I think, you know, I mean, a lot of it is just, like I said, um, go hang out with those business entrepreneur groups. Um, I think the other thing is you've got to probably be willing to do some projects at less than what you think you would want to charge as a test. I mean, what, okay. what we currently do now for a planning session with a client that we charge $6,500 for, uh, I did the first one. At, uh, well, we charge 6500 plus travel because most of these we do travel to all our clients mm-hmm. all over the country. Right. Um, you know, but we first one I did was 2500 and I just pulled a number out of the air that I figured, well, you know, the, the guy had heard me talk. He, he was interested, and I felt like that was the number he'd say yes to. And no, it didn't cover the amount of time and effort that I did, but it, it allowed me to test a product. Start somewhere. <laughs> right. And, and the other thing I would do is I would start billing on a fixed price basis. So we, you know, our primary, we have an, a, a, an initial engagement that's either a on-site planning session or they come to us or we do it remotely through screen share and do do it over two phone calls. And and so so we have a standard structure there that says okay, here's what we're going to do. And um you know, and 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 here's the methodology. So we're they're getting a stated thing of here's what we're going to accomplish in that. And here's a fixed price. It's not an hourly basis. Right. I think the Get back to the billable hour thing. Right. You know, because even though, a, and and here's the thing that we've learned. I mean, I'm more concerned about the potential new client that says yes too fast because that's a person who's desperate, and they've really thought they haven't thought about what it is. And if you say yes really fast to someone who's billing by the hour, you don't know how big it can get before it gets ugly. You know, for both sides. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, by being able to put a price up front and say, this is what, what it is, here's how long it's going to take, and, and all those kind of things, then that sets an, a, a, an established relationship. And then on an ongoing basis, we scope a year's worth of service, and then we just 
figure up what that should be across 12 months and divide it by 12 and we charge one month, uh, you know, a monthly fee, monthly you know, a fixed fee. fee for those things that we are going to accomplish in that 12 month period. And, and we find that that creates a very stable environment because it sets expectations of when we're supposed to do things. Uh, and, and, and obviously it holds our team accountable to delivering on that. So, you know, they don't have a, a, a flexible target that says, well, you know, if you bill by the hour, it says, well, where's the need for efficiency? Just, just spend a little more time on it. You make some more money. Well, yeah, you can, but you're going to have a horrible reputation. And, and, and no, it's not going to go no. well. And, and really, I mean, if I. No, the flat rate uh, is an excellent approach. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, entrepreneurs love it because you can quote something very quickly. I don't. I don't have to. I mean, I, I can give them a quote in, in verbally when we're talking about something because we have common structures of how we do things, mm-hmm. and and then it's just a matter of measuring that once the now if the client likes you and they want you to do more, you get into a change order situation. So you got to be very good at communicating, and that's and we're we're not as good as we should be. Uh, that's probably our, our biggest area of improvement. Uh, that we can do, but you've got to raise your hand as quickly as possible when you started straying off the original engagement and, and make sure that you do document what is the original engagement. Keep reminding them of what the original engagement is, and when they want to deviate, here's, okay, let's either do another little fixed price segment. I still like fixed price segment steps rather than well, overall. I'll just work on it a little bit extra, and I'll bill you those hours. I've gotten away from right. that, and I, I tend to try to avoid it if at all possible. Back to the pricing, it's just test, test, test. I mean, you have to, right. like you say, you try that and realize you can get triple that. I had a company and we were doing uh, photography promotion booklets, and first I was selling them for nineteen ninety five, and we were selling, you know, let's say a hundred a day. Then I went to twenty nine ninety five, and we sold two hundred a day. Then I went to thirty nine ninety five, <laughs> we were selling three hundred a day. Yeah. And when I got to forty five, then it started to drop off. Yeah. I realized, oh, thirty nine, because that's where the market people, is. Yeah. yeah, that's what people put the value on, not me. Well, and, you know? and I, we're told all the time that we're too cheap, and then they're probably right to a point, but I explained it to somebody the other day, and I said, but here, here's my philosophy to that. I'm in it to charge a price that allows me to make a reasonable market wage for myself and my team and make a 10% profit. I realize I could probably make a 15 to 20% profit if I really pushed the envelope. I'm not that good of a salesman. But my bigger reason as to why I don't do it is it would eliminate a bigger portion of the market that would look at the price no matter how valuable they thought it was, and they would just think it's too much. And I want it to be an easy adopt price because I'm trying to fix what my peers have screwed up. And I feel passionate that the entrepreneurs of this world have been sorely served by the accounting profession Mm -hmm. for the last 50 years. But you don't want to go too low and uh, yeah. try to make it up in volume. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm not in the change business, so absolutely. I, and, and like I said, I, I believe in that fundamental fairness that, you know, I, I put in the book, you know, 10% is the new break even. So I, I don't want to make less than 10% profit. And, that's pretty and, reasonable. And, and I'm not opposed to making more than 10% profit, but I'm what I'm opposed to is missing the broader segment of that $1 to $10 million entrepreneur. That's really my sweet spot of the people that we focus on. There's a much larger market in the million and under. 96% of all businesses in the U.S. are under under a million dollars. But some of those just don't have the capacity 
to get to the next level. In EO, you know, our, our measure to, to be qualified as a member is you've got to have at least a million dollars of revenue. Even though that number has been static, you know, for we've used for 25 plus years for the organization, I think a million dollars of revenue is still a significant data point for most right. entrepreneurs. But if we keep going the direction we're going, it be, might be more like a dollar, a million dollars. And yeah. It's worth it. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, this has been fantastic, very informative, Greg. And what would be your final words for my listeners? Well, you know, I, I think the idea is, like I said, just stick to the keep it simple but make an impact. At this stage of my career, you know, I, I've, I've been fortunate to interact with some really cool people and and, and really – They've challenged me to think differently in a sense that it's easy to fall into the trap of just thinking about what you do and let it define you. And I really think the idea is, you know, you've got to set your sights on that higher purpose and and that higher impact that you want to make in the world. And really, you know, my job is to elevate the, the capacity of everybody I work with and interact with to help them get farther and further in life, you know, one way or the other. And I can't do that if I do it in a way that diminishes my ability to be financially stable, but I can't do it in such a way to be a predator of the marketplace. And, and, and I think there's too much of that out there that, you know, everybody sits back and think, oh, that's pretty cool. I got to overcharge for that. <laughs> and I'm just like, no, that, that's not the thing that just excites me every day. Right. So there's the two extremes. If you're drowning, you can't help anybody. Right. And if you're gouging everyone, well, what's the other end that, of it? That's right. And and I'll tell you, what's interesting is when we look at data structures of doing uh, planning sessions with clients, the only number other than fixing their labor efficiency that we see that's that's overspent on is consultants. Now, it's not to say that they're, you know, all consultants are bad because that's what I am, you know. But I said, you know, if a client is using a consultant, I challenge them says they better produce results. Mm-hmm. Better be able to yeah. see tangible results. It'd be real easy to see. That's right, <laughs> because there are people who are really good at selling stuff, and, mm-hmm. and and I always tell people, I said, you know, when you're looking at your customer segment, if you rank order them in terms of profitability, you look at the three or four at the top; those are unlikely to be repeated. You know, I want to focus and and encourage people to focus on the broader segment of the market because that's where the greater population is, and probably in the long run, the greatest impact. You know, but you may want to eliminate that twenty uh, percent bottom. Piece. Exactly, and that's very true because you know, uh, in our case, in two thousand and three, we did the eighty twenty calculation mm-hmm. for Pareto score, and at the twenty percent level, that client they were spending about twenty two hundred dollars with us, and so we said, okay, we're not going to take anybody who is the profile of a client below that line. Mm-hmm. So it helped us sharpen our focus as to who we're really trying to serve. Today, that we're actually no longer an 80-20 company. It, it, we actually, uh, 80% of our revenue comes from about 45% of our clients. So we have a very flat curve. Good ratio. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And, and so, but that bottom 20% level of that income level, that profile of that client now is $6,000 in annual spend. And so it makes it to where, you know, we focused on people who want to have a relationship, not a transaction. Mm-hmm. And that's where, because we can't be successful in what we do in transactions. We can be successful with relationships. And well, my thought always as an entrepreneur was, if someone can produce results, I don't mind sharing the revenue. 
Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I mean, if it's a consultant and he's producing, you're crazy not to share the revenue so he stays around. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's obviously improving your business. You're crazy to get rid of him. You're going to kill the goose yeah. <laughs> that's laying the golden eggs here for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's been great. I appreciate it, Greg. And uh, I will create the show notes for this. So we'll put your contact information. Just to give it to us, verb, where is it best for people to get a hold of you right now? They can view our content on simplenumbers.me is the book, what we refer to as the book website. And then my email is greg.crabtree at crbcpa.net. Okay, I'll put that in the, the show notes too then. Well, that's perfect. Thank you for taking all this time. Well, thank you so much. And you have an incredible amount of energy. Seeing how it's late in the day, and you've probably been doing this since seven this morning. Yep. Uh, that is true, but uh, you can Especially tell it's, being, uh, it is a passionate topic for me. You love doing it, and uh, and it's accounting season, and I, I appreciate you taking out That's such a, a critical time of uh, you know. Hey, the dirty do this. the dirty little secret is I have a great staff who handles tax returns. I only get involved in the planning aspect. I don't I don't have to touch a tax return anymore. So that well, that's good. Made that part but of still, my life you great. Got the pre- you still got the pressure there though. It's, oh, yeah. You know, the April's coming. That's true. That's true. That, that means it ends. <laughs> so, that's true. That's good. <laughs> So yes, it's going right, to be over soon. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, Ken. All right. Thank, Thank you, you very much. All right, Steve. Okay, sir. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Income for Baby Boomers with your host, Ken Queen. Helping boomers like you get a business started, you can run from your own home. We interview owners of both online and offline businesses, but most importantly, ones that are run by baby boomers. Stay tuned next week for new and exciting businesses that you can start from your home. Until next time, have a profitable and blessed week.